before they extend their, you know, whatever uh, creepy hand into the deep social and emotional life of anybody's child, I think that they should go for the basic low-hanging fruit of teaching effectively about factual subjects and maintaining basic classroom order. That would be a really good first step. Hey, Joyful Warriors, Tiffany Justice here, Moms for Liberty, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Chloe Carmichael. Um, I'm gonna take a second to read Chloe's bio so that you can know a little bit about her, and then we're gonna jump into a really interesting conversation talking about child development, psychology, the importance of, of learning in school and free speech in school, and how we can better support our kids to know that home is a, a fun, safe space for them. Uh, to be exactly who they're meant to be and how we can help to inoculate them against some of this ideology that we know is happening in schools. Um, so Chloe um, is a clinical psychologist and USA Today bestselling author. Her private practice based in New York City before, uh, teaser, focuses on stress management, relationship issues, self-esteem, and coaching. Uh, Dr. Chloe is the author of two books, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety, and Dr. Chloe's Ten Commandments of Dating. She has appeared as an expert on ABC, CBS, VH1, and other national media. She's on the advisory board for the Women's Health Magazine, writes an expert blog for Psychology Today, and maintains an active consultancy with ongoing clients such as the law firm Baker McKenzie. So really interesting, very background, Chloe. I've seen you on TV before. I know that you've really been an outspoken person talking about development, talking about how to have healthy relationships. Um, and you are now a fellow Floridian. And you were chatting with me a little bit about uh, your journey to Florida. So welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast. And why don't we just jump right in? You can tell us a little bit about your family. Thank you so much, Tiffany. It's really an honor to be with you and all of the joyful warriors in your audience. Um, so yeah, I, I moved to Florida, the free state of Florida, uh, back in 2020. I had been living in New York City uh, actually since 2001. I was there, very happy there, and everything was going fine until they wanted to mask my then three-year-old, almost four-year-old son. He had been home with my husband and me for you know most of his life, and we had a plan at that point, that September, he was going to be in community and go to you know a program. And they wanted, you know, the governor made some rule that everybody two years old and up had to be masked. And I don't think it takes a clinical psychologist to know this, you know, to, to just know it's not, doesn't feel right. But, you know, I mean, for me as a clinical psychologist, knowing that when children speak or look at the mouths of other people around them, that's how they're learning and it's how they're emotionally regulating. It's also part of the way that their self-esteem is being formed. So if they're looking happy and people respond, or if they look sad and people respond, that's part of their sense of identity and self-esteem. I could go on and on about it, but it was really a coming out of the closet moment for me because I couldn't, I couldn't remain in New York and do that. And I felt so strongly about it 
that I actually wrote just a brief article about the basic reasons why masking a child is if we need anyone to explain this, you know, for 40 hours a week is not a good idea. And I took so much heat from my colleagues. And what was so crazy is that they told me, there's nothing in your article that isn't factual. We agree with you on the factual part. But we don't want you, we discourage you from sharing this because it could potentially decrease mask wearing in children. And I'm like, well, how does that make any sense? So anyway, that was my first time ever, like speaking out in a way that I knew was going to put me in the hot seat. And I haven't been able to shut up since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're happy for you uh, not being able to shut up because if you know, and I know you follow Moms for Liberty a little bit, you've seen our moms across the country. They, you're right. They knew intrinsically. They felt it. This mask is not good for my child. It is hindering their development. I had a son. My youngest son has a speech impediment. We saw him regressing almost immediately. Um, And they were doing a speech with masks on, which was absolutely just ridiculous. And yeah, thumbs down is right. And so you're absolutely right about that. When the American Academy of Pediatrics came out and said that babies don't really need to see their mom's face. That to me was, I think every mom in America who's ever had a baby before knew, no way, that's just not true. And so this chipping away at the trust that parents had for the medical, like for medicine, for with doctors, with these different associations, I think really the curtain was pulled back. What was that like for you as a doctor to have other doctors saying, factually, we agree, but we need to keep on the tra- on the mask wearing train because that's what... I guess the government wants? You know, it was like being in the twilight zone. I mean, like you said, it's been common knowledge as well as there's been a thousand, you know, psychology studies about infants and looking at mom's face. And, you know, there's been comprehension and learning studies about being able to look at, you know, a a moving image that's conveying the information. Um, And so then for these studies, you know, like the quote experts, they had the slimiest, slipperiest language. Remember, they would say, well, there's never been a study that has shown that masking children has harmed anybody, not one single study. But what they wouldn't tell you is that's because there has been no study, because prior to this whole insanity you would never have even been able to get approval to go around masking children for 40 hours a week because on its face, the idea sounds abusive and preposterous, right? So, I mean, it was it was validating to answer your question and affirming to hear my colleagues. Because before I published the article, I I wanted to make sure that I wasn't crazy because I was like, I can't believe nobody else is speaking up about this. Am I just personally missing something really obvious here? So before I shared the article publicly, I sent it to some colleagues and I was like, can you read this? Like, am I missing something or what? And so when they all said to me the same thing about, no, your everything here is correct, but don't share it because it could discourage mask wearing. I just kind of was like, okay, thanks. And I just went ahead and was like, I think that they've drunk too much Kool-Aid or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Fall in line. Everybody had to fall in line. I I have a friend um, who uh, knows a lot about uh, school environments and accommodations. And um, we actually went and tried to get uh, studies done and 
And of course they were rejected because you can't, you can't do a study knowing that harm is going to come to a child. You can't get approval for any of those studies. So while we had a mass experiment going on all over America in America's public schools and a lot of private schools too, where our children were actively being harmed every day and parents knew it, um, we couldn't actually get a study done because it couldn't get approved. So it was just the hypocrisy was- of all of that. <laughs> That was yeah. one of the worst things too, by the way, like you touched on something there, Tiffany, about parental involvement. So other parents, and I discussed this in the article too, other parents had said things like, you know, if you just tell your kids, it's okay. Like they take their cues right. from us, you know, so you have to just tell them like, it's fine. And I'm like, no, actually that's worse. It's gaslighting your children. If for some reason you cannot get your children out of that situation of being forced to wear a mask, you should at least validate what they're going through and say, you know, Junior, you're right. This is crazy. This is awful. I'm sorry this is happening. Here's why I'm currently powerless to change it. But don't um, dissociate from the part of yourself that recognizes that this isn't good and that this isn't healthy. That's actually a healthy awareness. And so to like, tell your children, oh, what's the matter with you? This is fine. I'm like, I I couldn't believe that parents were being told to do that. So I agree with you. And I think that brings us to the next point, which with the masking, I really felt uh, like I was being forced to lie to my kids. Like they wanted, I knew the masks weren't going to stop transmission, right? They weren't source control. They didn't stop transmission. And yet people wanted you to put a mask on your child and to make other people feel better. And I really had a problem with lying to my kids. I, um, I will share a, a funny story with you and then maybe we can talk about the importance of trust between parents and kids. So uh, my son, uh, youngest, is five years old. We are at a restaurant at the time, this is years ago, and he is eating French fries and dancing to the music and not paying attention to anyone. And just, you know, how many dips can a French fry take? Probably, you know, a good five for him, right? He loves ketchup. So he's, you know, dunking and eating and, you know, and uh, enjoying himself. And so I took a video because it was so cute and he's dancing. And uh, I posted the video, this is again years ago on Facebook and just said like, you know, I've never seen a kid love ketchup so much, something like that, right? And um, Reed's eating the ketchup. He loves the ketchup. It's so fun. Teacher sees the video and says, Reed, you had such a nice lunch with your family yesterday. You look like you those ke- that those French fries were delicious. And he just there was something about that I posted it and other people saw it that really bothered him. And he's and, and still to this day he's like that. And um, he came home and he was very upset. And he said, uh, you know, Mom, I don't want you to post videos of me. And I said, Okay, I'm sorry. I will never, I won't ever do that again without your permission, right? I'm, I'm really sorry. And um, so I just, in that moment, it was like, you know, I'd never had one of my children not like express the fact that I had done something that really bothered them, right, in that way. Um, and so with the masking and stuff, I just had this feeling like, you know, I just don't want to lie to them or put them in a position where they're acting and thinking that I am supportive of something that isn't true, that isn't right. No, yeah, that's so so disorienting because children by nature understand that their parents are their protectors, their nurturers, right? And so when we 
when the children are sensing, as it, I mean, I think anybody can sense, you know, that when you can't see other people and you're, you know, you're covering your own face, it's off-putting. And when the child expresses, you know, this doesn't feel right, and then the the parents are giving this, you know, strange robotic answer about, you know, how this is actually for the best, when it the parent doesn't even believe it, I think right. it's very disconcerting and disorienting to the child. So I think that makes a lot of sense. It was such an interesting situation, but I did feel that parents, I was sitting on the school board at time, and just to close out the masking conversation, we were forcing parents to be complicit in the harm of their children. And that really bothered me. Um, and then on school board, Chloe, we had people coming and telling us, this is hurting my child, right? I, my, I, and, and please give them a medical exemption or please recognize this medical exemption that I have. And to see the government, to see board members, elected officials say, yeah, we're not that concerned about it. Like, we hear you, but we feel like we know better, or the CDC knows better than you for your child, was very concerning. And so Moms for Liberty was born out of that just kind of like you, right? You said coming out of the closet, this awakening moment of, oh, wow, the government really thinks that I'm not the expert of my child, that they can dictate to me education or medical care. Um, and so the final straw for me was on the school board when the superintendent wanted to have a medical committee. And he uh, was going to bring in the head of the hospital and the Department of Health and then some doctors that he was choosing. And I said, no, Mr. You know, Mr. Superintendent, <laughs> you don't get to choose my kid's doctor. And even when I choose my child's doctor, I direct the medical care still. They give me advice, but that's up to me uh, to carry out. And so let's talk about the role of parents in a child's life. Because right now we have a situation where schools are telling kids that home might not be safe for them, that their parents might not be safe people to talk to. And that to me is just horrific. So can we talk about where we are in America right now regarding parental rights and what's best for kids going forward? Yes, I mean it's it is horrific, right? The idea that school or really any adult would try to intervene between that relationship, you know, of of parent and child. Now, obviously, for, you know, decades if not longer, it's been the case that obviously if a child is being physically abused, certainly, you know, the school or I as a clinical psychologist am a mandated reporter. I absolutely need to get involved. I'm not saying as you are not either. Nobody's saying, you know, that parents should be, you know, abusing their children. Of course. But it seems more and more like this concept of, quote, safe spaces is being manipulated and perverted to the point where, as you said, you know, you could just simply have a home where the parents are evangelical Christians or observant Jews or, you know, faithful Muslims. And the school is intervening and denigrating and degrading that home life and that family life. And, you know, moreover, this is being done by potentially you know, teachers that have no mental health training, yeah. that have many of their own personal issues, that maybe have a savior complex or a power complex or a political agenda, but 
what authority or knowledge do they have to label a home environment as unsafe, again, lest there is physical abuse or neglect or something like that happening? I mean, ironically, that's the harm. That is where the child is being harmed because you know, you're chipping away at that child's foundation, you're chipping away at that child's role models, you're forcing that child to, you know, become confused about where their loyalties lie and and where authority is. All of those things are things that are actually important for children to master in their developmental foundation. So yeah, I mean, I pity the person that would ever, you know, attempt that with my child is all I can say. So you bring up um, teachers and uh, the fact that I, I feel like teachers have been put into a position where they're almost now responsible for raising children. And um, it's not just about teaching kids to read or to do math, right? But they're going to take care of now the whole child. We hear this a lot, a lot, the whole child. But you're right. Teachers are not licensed mental health counselors. Let's talk about social emotional learning because I have seen uh, the rise of social emotional learning in Florida schools. When I was on school board, uh, we had a horrific shooting in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. There was a lot of money that was put into mental health. And then this idea of social emotional learning really started ramping up in my district. Now it's been growing and expanding all over the country. And all of our moms know they're very concerned about social emotional learning and teachers um, doing this type of kind of almost whole group counseling and uh, values clarification uh, instruction in the classroom. As a clinical psychologist, I would imagine you've seen social emotional learning. What do you think? Yes. I mean, so, so many thoughts. So actually the Independent Women's Forum, which I love, they actually sent me some uh, social emotional learning materials to review because they wanted, you know, some thoughts about them. And so I had the opportunity to look at some of these materials and I was completely thrown. Okay, for example, one of the things that I saw, and again, I'm sure maybe every social emotional learning protocol is different, just like school districts choose different textbooks or whatever. So maybe there's different um, SEL programs. But the yeah. materials that I was sent to look at and to review included something I found very disturbing for very young children, for the care of very young children. And it was called I Love You Rituals. I love you rituals. That is exactly what it was called. And, you know, the the caregivers, teachers, I think some of this is for daycare as well, were doing these, you know, rituals, whether it be like, you know, hugs or X, Y, Z or whatever, but they were just the name of these things being called I love you rituals, I found so disturbing because love is you know, I mean, it, as you said, it implies an incredibly deep level of trust and an incredibly deep level of care and a deep level of intimacy and guidance on a whole lot more than reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? And I don't want anyone appropriating the word love and using it as some kind of a Trojan horse into a false sense of security and intimacy 
um, you know, with my child. So yeah, I, I would have real reservations about anyone who thinks that, you know, that they need to provide social and emotional learning. What about basic classroom order, right? That's one thing that has gone completely to the wayside. And I honestly don't even entirely blame teachers for this because I think that they've been stripped of all of their disciplinary tools. They almost have no choice now, you know, but to tolerate and validate most any type of poor behavior, which is actually quite counter to good social and emotional learning, social right. and emotional learning as to how to show respect for authority, how to show respect for your classmates, how to emotionally regulate yourself and do an assignment in class, whether you feel like it or not. Those are the types, I mean, we're not even at that point, like what is the U.S. now, like 30s, 40s in terms of, you know, global performance on, on you know, basic academics. So before they extend their, you know, whatever uh, creepy hand into the deep social and emotional life of anybody's child, I think that they should go for the basic low-hanging fruit of teaching effectively about factual subjects and maintaining basic classroom order. That would be a really good first step. And we feel, I agree with you. I feel like the boundary between school and home is just continually being blurred. And as parents, it's our job to redraw that boundary. So before we end today, I want you to give, think about that, sharing some tips with parents about how to redraw that boundary uh, with their child. You're right about the classroom issue. I was watching a teacher um, speaking on um, doing a video or something on TikTok or on one of the social media apps. And she was talking about teachers leaving the classroom. And she was saying that the behavior has gotten so bad um, with the kids. But beyond that, even, she said, it's almost like they care more about being entertained for the next five minutes than actually setting goals and working towards mastery or success. She was a band director who was speaking. And so what do you think it told our kids? We shut the schools down. And we basically said that even though we knew there was a lot of data to show kids didn't get sick as, as much with COVID, um, they, you know, the hospitalizations were very, very low, deaths were very, very low with children, but yet we put them on the back burner and basically said their education wasn't that important. Um, so what message do you think that sent to kids? It, it, that has to play a part with a lot of what we're seeing as far as, you know, rising absenteeism and, and a real lack of interest in school now. Right. Well, sickness and death in children from COVID, uh, low rates of that also occurred in countries that did not shut down at all. Right. So I don't think right. that it's necessarily all those, you know, uh, school closures and masks that we have to thank for the fact that children are just naturally resilient when it comes, you know, to COVID. But as far as how to handle that dynamic for parents out there that are dealing with schools that are trying to do this to their children, I would just like to share something from psychology literature that we know about abusive dynamics, right? So one of the first things that the abuser does is actually try to isolate the victim from their support network and, you know, um, gaslight them into a situation where they are, you know, not sharing about what's really happening in the abusive relationship with their, with their support network and where they're isolated from their support network. So I would encourage parents to every day, like, first of all, get your kids out of that environment, like if you can, but if for some reason you just cannot, 
encourage a very open dialogue where you say, so your teacher is telling you, you know, that home is not a safe place. You know, I have to tell you, you know, that really upsets me. Let's talk about what else your teacher is saying. But just to explain to them, the number one most important thing is that we as parent and child, we don't have secrets here. And so to kind of take the power out of this secret second relationship that they're trying to take over with you at school, we're going to diffuse that by you sharing here. Every time they tell you that, tell me all the crazy stuff so that I can know it and I can be there alongside you with it. And I can tell you the real truth and maybe even go with your child or by yourself to sit with the parent or sit with the teacher and to sit with the school board and to tell them that you don't appreciate that this is being said. We just, we don't want to lapse into a passive state where we just allow these things to happen. The reason for that is because if we do, we mentally start to normalize it and we mentally start to assume that we're tolerating it because it's okay. And so that's why it's very important to always remain conscious of it and to talk about how it should not be happening. That's what they tell victims of abuse is that even if you can't get out of the abusive situation, don't stop talking about it lest you go into denial. No, I think that's a really great point. And we always suggest to parents that they go and they meet the teacher and they're just very clear about what their expectations are in the classroom. You know, I'm the parent, you're the teacher. Home is where, you know, we direct the education, the medical care of our child. And 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 just setting those boundaries right from the beginning, I think can be very helpful when your child is entering school. So thank you for that. Um, we... We talk about schools, when I talk about schools in general right now, gender identity, this idea of keeping secrets from parents that, again, the school is safe and you can be who you really are here. If you're um, a child who is gay or you think you're trans or non-binary or whatever it is that that child may be going through, that school would be safe and home wouldn't. And I think it's really unfair Um, It's 2023. Uh, A lot of our moms, um, we have moms who are gay. We have moms who have children who are gay. And so um, the idea that school would ever tell my kid that home isn't safe is horrifying to me. I said, I was on Dr. Phil and I said, um, my child does not need a sexual spirit guide at school. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, just creating that relationship with your child so they, they know you can always be open and honest. They can be open and honest with you. Um, for parents that are listening, I think that's something that, you know, they very much want to uh, start that conversation with their kids if they haven't yet. Yeah. And I think that part of that includes emphasizing free speech, right? So being able to speak your mind if the teacher is, you know, seeing something that, you know, seems off, even if they don't feel safe to speak it at school, at the very least to be able to speak it at home and to talk about it. I mean, that's one of the big myths, I believe, is that, you know, they say, well, we have to protect safe spaces. And, you know, we're so concerned about hate speech and bullying. And so, you know, that's why we have to stifle free speech. Whereas the opposite is actually true. We actually have safe spaces when we know how other people really think and how other people really feel. So if somebody, you know, hates gay people, which I don't, you don't, but if somebody hates, you know, say women, 
I would rather know how they feel, you know, than than to not be around them. And I 100% agree with you that um, we need to not have the school becoming our sexual spirit guide, right? Whether it's about heterosexual sex or about, you know, gay sex or any kind of sex, it's just not something, you know, that that we need our children you know, being, quote, educated about necessarily at school. So let's talk about children in general. I have four kids. Uh, I've, I've done the potty training, right, that you, you help you teach them how to walk. You uh, raise your children. You choose to send them to school if you don't homeschool. Um, and I've watched four children, very different kids, go through development. And some things are just common. You know, my kids are all very different. But development, the development of children um, is, is shared. And so I have said before, a child's sexual orientation should be the least interesting thing about them in elementary school. Um, so such a hyper-focus on sexual orientation. When do children start to become more aware of that? And um, are there dangers when we're pushing um, this hypersexualization at younger and younger ages in our schools? There is. Now, so children become aware of sexuality, you know, typically more often around the age of puberty. But prior to that, you know, they're still becoming conscious of, you know, say gender roles or, you know, the concept of partnership and those types of things. And of course, they also have a lot of imagination. They're oftentimes trying to work out their relationship with authority and independence and attention-seeking behaviors. And so it really worries me that when you have teachers that are almost elevating a certain type of sexuality and saying, hey, just want to say public service announcement, if you have this particular sexuality, we just want you to know that, you know, you're okay. And you can talk all about this here. And we'll even call you by a different name. We'll even have a special closet with a special wardrobe and you can change clothes and we won't tell your parents about it. All of that, I think, could actually be um, almost again, perverting a a child's normal desire to play with authority and to be able to have special attention and parts of their identity that feel recognized to the point where, for example, um, myself, <laughs> when I was five years old, kindergarten, there was a girl in our class that was adopted. And the teacher made this big thing about, you know, Marianne is adopted and I just want everybody to know that, you know, she's okay and she's special and her parents chose her and she's everybody yay for Marianne. Next thing you know, I went around telling everybody that I was adopted (laughs) because I just, you know, in that moment, it just seemed so special that Marianne was being noticed and recognized, et cetera. You can see where this is going, right? So when we create all these, you know, special effects, if you will, I think we're almost glamorizing or distracting from just a normal, natural progression of whatever sexuality a child may ultimately go on to develop. Uh, And so this leads me to the question about autism. Uh, We are seeing that a lot of our most vulnerable children, uh, especially uh, some of our uh, preteen 
uh, girls and teenage girls um, are uh, very vulnerable to gender ideology. We ha I do believe we have a social contagion, um, and I think we're seeing more and more evidence of that every day. Um, but children with autism uh, often struggle to find acceptance in uh, social settings. And this transgender ideology or gender ideology, Chloe, I, my understanding is that they get love bombed to a point um, that really kind of the, the autism and the gender ideology are like a perfect storm. Um, and, and so parents, I know we have a lot of parents whose children are on the autism spectrum. Uh, they are very concerned that they're vulnerable in schools. Um, if you could chat a little bit about that and maybe some advice for parents who are struggling with that right now. Yes, you're right, Tiffany. So there are several factors there when it comes to autism and, you know, this extreme almost fad of, you know, of, of being, quote, trans, you know. So autistic children or people are oftentimes more prone to concrete and black and white type thinking, right? So while you and I are quite aware that a boy in a dress is not a girl, it's a boy who's emulating the cosmetic appearance of a girl, and he might even be doing medical treatments to mimic the hormonal profile of a girl, but that the, that doesn't make him a girl any more than it makes me a gorilla if I put on a gorilla suit, right? But the autistic child, not that they would be fooled simply by a Halloween costume, but they are more prone to concrete and black and white thinking. So they really might not as much grasp the nuances of what's really happening when someone goes through a process of beginning to mimic or impersonate the appearance uh, or even the internal hormonal profile of somebody of the opposite sex. Like you said, also, the autistic person could really have struggled to find community. You know, we all know social awkwardness is kind of one of the hallmark features, right? And so when they have this Insta community where all of a sudden they feel like they belong, that can feel very seductive. There's one other factor which psychologists call a flight into health. So when somebody has a, a an issue, like they've been struggling with autism, and all of a sudden somebody dangles in front of them, you know what, maybe you don't really have autism. Maybe all this time you've just been a, a boy trapped in a girl's body, as ridiculous as that actually is, again, somebody who's young, who's, they're more prone to magical thinking in the first place. Young people are teenagers. It's by definition a stage where they're supposed to be trying on different identities and experimenting, you know, with identities. It's also a time when they like to rebel from authority and feel like they're doing something that's a little counterculture. And so it can really be a perfect storm when they also get to suddenly say, wow, you know, maybe I can also shed autism and the struggles I've had with it and just celebrate being a new person. And again, with that black and white thinking, they actually may temporarily believe that they are a new person. And the really sick part is that there's this industry that wants to medicalize and monetize this entire process, that there are incredible amounts of people that are are profiting off of this um, and I, I, 2.1 really billion, me. Two, $2 billion dollars 
last year and projected to grow it at a rate of 11% um, every year if, if we don't uh, stem the tide. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of money behind this, and it seems that the schools have given entrance to a lot of people without prioritizing the importance of the parent. Chloe, I could talk to you all day, um, and I know that our moms are going to want to hear from you again. Um, you brought up some other things that you'd like to discuss in the future. I know you have a real concern about our boys, our sons. I've got three sons of my own. Um, so I'd love to have you back uh, on the Joyful Warrior podcast and continue these conversations. If you would uh, join us again, I'm going to reach out to our moms and, and um, ask them uh, after they see this podcast what they would like to hear about from you. And hopefully um, we can have you back. And uh, we just really appreciate your time today talking about child development. Um, Chloe, tell us how we follow you. If people want to learn more about you, uh, where can they go? Sure. They can go to makeachange.us. That's makeachange.us. And it will take you to a page in my website that will have some content that you might like. And then there's all of my social media handles right there through my website. And I love to interact on social media. So if anybody wants to ask a question or share a comment, um, I'm really excited to connect with freedom-loving moms out there. That's so awesome. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we will definitely have you back and we really appreciate your insight as a mom, fellow mom and a, a doctor. So thank you. Thanks, Tiffany.